All right, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Um, Date, author, and occasion would normally be the first part of any message that I would preach when beginning a new passage. Uh, I know all that stuff. I just realized I neglected to put any of it in my notes. So we'll just ad lib here. Uh, The date would have been sometime around 80 uh, CE or AD, depending on which you prefer, 80 AD. Um, The occasion would have been that John was writing something of a commentary, um, a... Uh, an accessory to his gospel to a specific group of people uh, that that had the gospel of John in hand and were battling the false teaching of docetism uh, which is kind of a form of Gnosticism in whatever region these folks were residing so what you have in the letter of 1 John is an, an effort on his part from a human perspective to buttress those points from the gospel of John that these folks needed to elevate and value in order to not reach wrong conclusions about the physical nature of Jesus Christ's advent and what he accomplished by coming in human form. <clears throat> Oh, it was written by John. That's the author. So there you go. Uh, also, I should mention before I go any further that the reason that Lisa is not in here is because she's out doing the nursery. So there's a lack of baby back here. And if Naomi were here, there'd be a lack of baby in this area because she and I know Jackie and I know some other ladies worked to kind of set up a a corral where the babies can be kept. The babies don't bother me, um, but just practically speaking, I recognize it's a distraction for the parents. So hopefully it's nice to just be able to sit there and listen. Maybe I'll even have something worth hearing, right? So in the beginning of this epistle, John makes reference to John 1.1. Let's go look at it just so that you can see what I'm saying is true. So if you flip back to the Gospel of John and just look at the first couple of verses there. It 
John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. <clears throat> in 1 John 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. There's some similarity there between the Gospel and the Epistle. And if we were starting a series in the Gospel of John, I would point out that there are some similarities between John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1. So there's this consistent theme that John weaves through uh, the beginning of his writings uh, where he goes back to the beginning of creation and points out that what happened at creation was God spoke, it was, and it was good. In Colossians, we saw a few months ago, Paul makes the point that everything that was created was created by and in the power of Jesus Christ. He was that word that existed in the beginning. He was the logos that pre-existed his human form, which we see uh, when he's born to Mary. Um, the word becomes embodied. It, the, the light and the truth takes on human flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we call that the incarnation, right? Jesus was the incarnate word. And what uh, incarnate means is made flesh or given human form, usually re referencing a deity. What John's teaching us is that the one by whom all things was made, who was not created, but was co-eternal with God, was made human. Um, there are two elements to that being made human. I promise this the whole thing is not going to be this boring. If you're wincing. First is temporal. Second is physical. Jesus temporarily existed in time. In the midst of linear time as we experience it. God and the, the, the word before he was incarnate exist outside of time. They have no beginning and no end. Right? Um, but this is why he is with us now in this moment. And he is also... In, in the future, fully aware of how all of this ends up, right? Jesus, for a time, brought his eternal nature under restraint in order that he could be temporal, in time with humanity. He also became a human man. He took on human flesh. He is still a human man. That restriction of humanity was not temporary. His existence in the framework of time was. John 1.14 says it like this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Galatians 4.4 says it like this. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then in Romans 8, Paul says it like this. Romans 8, 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh. For our purposes, let's turn to Hebrews, which is just back a little bit from where we are. Uh, chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read uh, verse 14, but then I want you to keep a finger here because we're going to come back. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Let me pause. Let me talk a little bit about that. The children uh, that the writer of Hebrews has in view are, he's talking about all those who God sovereignly knows are his. God does not look down the corridor of time and see who's going to choose to believe in Jesus and then decide to save them. That is not at all what, what I'm trying to indicate. The God who exists outside of time need not look down the corridor of time, right? He need not look into the future. God is the one who decides who will be saved and who will not be saved. And I know that gives you an icky feeling because, you know, we're, we're fallen human flesh with feet of clay and finite minds. But the reality is you are not more gracious than God. You would not have saved everybody if you were God. God knows what he's doing and he has sovereignly chosen some for salvation. All those who were chosen for salvation, who share in flesh and blood, are not able to um, meet the demands of the law. Right? So God's holy and he loves people. Both things are true. He's holy. He never sins. He never does anything wrong. And he loves people. People who are not holy, who love sin and do lots of things wrong. God gives the commandment. So you're going along and you're doing thing Z. And he says what you should be doing for my pleasure, for human flourishing, for your own satisfaction. What you should be doing is thing A. And you're over here doing thing Z. So the law comes and you look at it and it goes, oh, you say, I'm supposed to be doing this over here, not this that I'm doing. Now, try as you might, you will not be able to do thing A because it's in your nature to do thing Z. And there's no fix for it. So here's, here's what Hebrews 2.14 is telling you. Since therefore the children, that's all those whom he's chosen for salvation. And brothers and sisters, if I can just add, we don't know who that's not. So how anybody can take the doctrine of sovereign election and go, well, God's going to save who he's going to save and I don't need to share the gospel. You might not be saved if you think that. All right. Anyway, um, Sorry. Shouldn't preach angry, right? But I just, mm. therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He takes on flesh so that he can be like us. That's what that's saying. We share in flesh and blood. So he shares in flesh and blood. It's the only way he could save us. Let's, let's see what that means and why it matters. Um, 
You've heard me talk before about the, the hypostatic union. Everybody remembers what that is. Great. <laughs> Jesus was not half man and half God. He was 100% God and he was 100% man. And the, all the physicists and mathematicians go, that doesn't make any sense. You can't have 200%. I understand that. I can't really fully explain it or even comprehend it, but he was not limited in his deity, nor was the experience that he had as a man limited by his deity. Okay, he was 100% both. Why? Right, so Hebrews just told us because the children share in flesh and blood, he himself had to share in flesh and blood. Why did it have to happen that way? Well, because... I just told you, you're doing thing Z, you find out you should be doing thing A, and you're like, ah, let me go over here and do thing A, and you can't, right? Because the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus comes as a man and fully God because as God, he can do thing A, and he can resist the temptation to do thing Z. It's got to be God because man can't do it. The problem is, we've already been doing things. Most of us did it for quite a few years before we even became aware of the gospel and, and got salvation and the promise of eternal life, right? So you look backwards, however long you've been doing the wrong thing, that's how much guilt you have racked up before a just and holy God. He sits on a throne judging and he hates sin and he cannot just go oh it's just a little bit of sin it's no big deal God can't do that because he's just so the sin's got to be dealt with so Jesus comes as the children were sharing in flesh and blood so he himself partook of the same nature as God to do what God had commanded as man, God cannot suffer and die for the penalty of the sin that you've already been engaged in. But a man can. A man has to. So he's 100% God, Nito, in order to be obedient to what God has commanded. And he's 100% man in order to pay the price for all that we have already done and yet will do that's wicked and sinful. Practical application point that just popped into my head, and this is something that I've only learned in the last four or five years, so I'm going to share it, and some of you are going to be like, you always say this, and I'm going to be like, really? I didn't remember that I had already shared that. I'm sorry. When somebody sins against you, when somebody sins against you and it bothers you that they did that, Right. I'm not going to I don't want to project an image of a particular person into your head, but I'm sure you can imagine somebody sinning against you and you're like, oh, that hurts my feelings and it makes me mad. And I feel that I have been uh, transgressed. I'm offended and you can't let it go. What is the only way that sin can be dealt with? What's the only way that sin can really be dealt with? The guilt of it, the stain of it, and the consequences of it. The only way 
that sin can really be dealt with is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what you are effectively saying when you can't let it go is that you need Jesus to suffer some more. Because it's the only way it gets dealt with. Let it go. Amen? If that's the alternative, I'm going to let it go. I was talking to somebody this week and I just mentioned, I, I came across something that brought up a bad memory. And uh, I, I told the person I was talking to, I'm like, I, I think, I really, like, I believe that part of forgiveness is, is laying down the right to hurt them back, right? Somebody hurts you, if you forgive them, you're laying down the right to hurt them back. But another part of forgiveness is letting go of the emotional negativity that you have inside. And, and my, like, honestly, I think that's the harder part. But even that, the only way that that can be dealt with is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this is why the Bible says, let bitterness and wrath be put away. Let it not be among this people a feature that we're bitter and wrathful. Because the only way that's going to get dealt with is in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean and why does it matter? Well, we have to begin here that Jesus became flesh. We have to begin here because John's laying the foundation upon which our shared life rests. All right. So look back at Hebrews 2 again. Remember I said stay there because we're going to come back. Verse 16. For surely... It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the church... um, And the word, I know for sure it's most of the time, it might be all of the time for church in the New Testament, ecclesia, um, from which we get uh, fancy theological doctrinal terms like ecclesiological, which just means it has to do with the church. I didn't go to seminary, and that's part of the reason why I was like, you guys are just coming up with words to make things sound harder than they really need to be. I know some of you will never be back having heard that news. The word ecclesia or ecclesia in the New Testament is made up of two words, so it's a compound word. One of them means those called. One of the words means those called, and the other one means those gathered. So... Ecclesia means the the called or the chosen and the gathered together. So what the church is, is those who've been called out of sin, out of darkness, into life and obedience and light, and then gathered together. So you have yourself individually, hopefully you've been called, but you can't be gathered unless you do it with others, right? You're going to be gathered by yourself, that's just you being there. The gathered means the community, 
of, of faith believers. So the common part then of our community is that we have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Say amen. Okay. As Jesus identified with us, as the children share in flesh and blood, so he himself shares in flesh and blood. As Christ identified with us, we identify with one another. If he can condescend to go, let me be like you, so I can save you from your own sinful, evil, wicked rebellion. How on earth is it that a Christian can be like, I'm not going to church been hurt too many times and I shouldn't act like that about it because that's somebody that probably needs a hug right so I shouldn't mock them but it, it's like in my worst moment dealing with church stuff and church people I've never been like here well the options on the table that I could just not come back what and I'll just stay home and listen to sermons on the internet. I just can't, it's too hurtful to be around people. What? There are 350 some odd one another's in the scriptures you can't do by yourself. At no point in Ephesians does Paul say, sit in your basement with a single light bulb on and then do all these things, because it can't be done. You have to be with other people, right? Jesus identified with us, so we identify with one another who have come to faith. How does this faith thing happen? 1 John 1, 1 and 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh yeah, I have to put on my glasses. There we go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have, uh, sorry, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. So let me say that a different way. The apostles and the other New Testament writers were witnesses of the reality that Jesus came in the flesh. They wrote down what they had witnessed and now we're reading what they had written down. How does this faith thing come to happen? Well, faith comes by hearing the word of God or reading it, whichever verb you would prefer to use. They... These apostles and New Testament writers observed it. They wrote it down uh, and proclaim it to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So those who embrace the witness, the testimony of the New Testament writers are those who embrace by faith this testimony are saved from their sin and rebellion. Their sins are forgiven. Eternal life is promised to them. And then that faith that they have, that little mustard seed of faith that they have, is matured over time through the ministry of the same word that drew them to faith to begin with. Uh, the other thing I would say, and we'll see this as we go along through 1 John, if God gives us the time, 
The other thing that matures us in our faith is the realities and experiences that we have are also shared by sinners with sinners. So one of the things that I do when I'm preaching is I try periodically to like weave in a personal anecdote or story, right? To just ring the bell and get you focused because we love gossip. And so even if I start talking about myself a little bit, you're like, ooh, maybe he's going to reveal something. We do the same thing in our interactions with each other. What are most of your conversations about? Something that happened, right? Or something that's going to happen or something you hope will happen. Most of what we talk about is, you know, you, you get home from work. Uh, I get home from work. Lisa gets home from work. The kids get home from school. How was your day? And then we fill in the space with how our day was. And sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was terrible. We come to church. And what do you do? How many times this morning? Did you have a good Christmas? Right? What are we talking about? We're talking about what happened. We're sharing our lives with one another through testimony, through a, a witness of what had occurred. So the, the realities and experiences that we have get shared with one another. Those individuals sharing life in that way constitute the church, the, the body of Christ. And in the context of church, we see, we hear, we taste, we feel with our hands the things concerning the word of life. Which means as we go along, the conversation must of necessity shift from how was your Christmas to something a little bit more substantive. Substantive. I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Something a little more substantive like... Hey, could you pray for me because I'm facing this this week? Or an update. Hey, I asked you to pray for me last week about this thing. Here's what happened. Or we just talk about, you know, my week stunk because my kids are going wild or the marriage is struggling. Like, and then the more we do that, the more we're sharing like deeper experiences and 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 more impactful experiences that now as you're sharing with me, I'm learning things not just about you, but about life and what it can be like, how difficult my life might be great. And then I bump into you and you're like, I've got rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and my kidneys are shutting down. And I'm like, dang, Carrie, how's the gospel working for you in light of that struggle? And then I begin to learn from her. Oh, the gospel's not about you can have faith and prosperity and popularity. The gospel's about you have a Jesus who never leaves your side and tends your heart in its darkest, most difficult moments and has promised to take you home when your time comes. Like my faith is deepened by those conversations. My faith is enhanced by that shared life. Right? Okay. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because where we begin matters. And where we begin matters because a healthy church, 
a healthy church will be preoccupied with developing our faith in the context of community. It's not a bunch of lone rangers who are just throwing money into the same tithe bucket. A healthy church will be preoccupied with developing our faith in the context of community. Where we begin matters because the church will tend to be distracted with other things. And if you've been to church for any number of years, you've seen this happen. Instead of cultivating faith, we cultivate traditions or programs or property. Right? Instead of uh, cultivating what, what's clearly prioritized in Scripture, what we, what we really end up doing is just cultivating idolatry. Where we begin matters because it affects dramatically where we end up. This is why you notice, um, I'm not trying to be unkind, and I don't have anybody in mind, but I've had enough conversations with people. Like you go uh, home to visit family in another state, and you go to church with them, and I've heard this many times over the years. It just felt like it was an inch deep and a mile wide. Many times I've heard this from folks who go to other churches and they're like, you know, it was big and the music was amazing. And, um, but like the, it just didn't seem like there was, there was much substance there. Well, there's two reasons for that. Number one, you're just visiting. You got to get to know those people if you're going to have depth of relationship. Amen. So let's go easy. Let's be nice. But number two is it's not uncommon for churches to be preoccupied with things that don't matter. Building funds. Children's programs. Building a Christian Ferris wheel, right? Where we begin matters because we might also become sinfully preoccupied with the purity of the community. So where did we begin? Well, we began with Jesus really came in the flesh. He really became temporal and physical, in time with a physical body. That's where we started, right? The foundation, though, of this fellowship, this shared life, is faith in that Jesus Christ. That person, Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's where we start. John's going to deal with some of the sources of trouble and difficulty in the church, but it becomes obvious when you consider who's supposed to make up the members of the church. Consider Matthew 13, 24. Turn there. Matthew 13. <clears throat> Verse 24. He put another parable. This is Jesus. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. <clears throat> and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. 
Let them both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. <clears throat> That's Jesus telling us that not everybody who comes to church is going to be part of the fellowship, and God has decreed it that way. There's going to be people here that are lost. There's going to be people that show up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and never bend a knee to King Jesus. That's going to happen. It is not the foundation of the church to root out the weeds. But we've seen this before too, right? Or you've heard stories of this? Like, let me say less, right? So, all right, so what's our foundation? What's the, per let's do it this way. Let's do three questions. What is our foundation? What is the purpose of our fellowship? And then what is the outcome, all right? What's our foundation? What's the purpose of our fellowship? What's the outcome? There will be a test. I will be asking you afterwards, some of you, mainly the ones that I feel like weren't paying attention. Like if I think I can get you, I'm gonna get you. <clears throat> the foundation is God the Son made himself into a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived perfectly obedient to the law to provide obedience on behalf of all his people. Um, just sit anywhere. Make room for him, y'all. Make room for him. We're almost done. Jesus was rejected by mankind and killed. Jesus became the very essence of sin and guilt in those moments as he's hanging on the cross dying. Jesus died to pay the price for my guilt, your guilt, and all of our sin against God. He was buried. After three nights, he rose again because death couldn't hold him, right? And he ascended into, this is the part everybody leaves out, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, having finished the work of redemption. So his life and death, life, death, and life, saved people from the curse of sin and gave all who believe his message new life. The foundation is not that. The foundation is we believe that. Corporately, we're in agreement. That's the truth. That's the essence of the gospel. So I spent the first two years when we started meeting as a community, as a fellowship, the first two years were spent on draw to Christ. So we went Haggai, Galatians, James, Ruth, Colossians. And the lion's share of the emphasis of those message was, messages was, we've got to know Jesus Christ and be in relationship with God the Father. Two years we did that. And there are still people here who don't know him. Nothing we can do about it. It's not the priority of the church to purify, get rid of the non-believers. Like, show me where it says that. Jesus just said the wheat and the tares are going to grow together. The foundation of our fellowship is not we're really good at finding the ones that don't believe and getting them, getting them out of here. The foundation is shared faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the Son of Man, who do people say 
the Son of Man is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church? Okay, think with me. <clears throat> I just said it 40 different ways. It's not Peter. It, not that it's not n- n- Peter. Like, Peter's part of the fellowship for sure. And he was the, the kind of the, the, the apostle who opened the floodgates of preaching the gospel and seeing thousands of people saved. But the Catholics kind of ruined Peter for me. Just, like, I, I want to go easy, right? It, the, the foundation is not Peter. The foundation is what did Peter say when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, son of the living God. That's the foundation. Faith understanding and comprehension that the gospel is true, Jesus is the Son of God who saves sinners, is the foundation of our fellowship. That's where it starts, okay? Second, what's our purpose? Foundation, purpose, outcome. What's our purpose? We're almost done. It's the first priority of the church to share life with those who have life. And I know uh, the evangelists don't like that and would prefer that I not say things like that, but the, it's the, like, I'm sorry. The first priority of the church is not community outreach. It's not missionary work. It's not paying a pastor a salary. It's not building buildings. The first priority of the, the, the community of faith, I mean, those are good things and those should be prioritized, but they are not the first reason that the church was established. In Acts 2.42, It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Scripture, fellowship, sharing meals, prayer. Then what happened? Then what happened? Then awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." So incredible, amazing things happened and lives were changed. They bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2, day by day, they're meeting in their homes, in the temple. Hebrews 10, 25, they they had the respect of the community around them. Colossians 4, 5, Um, 1 Peter 2, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's like 12 or 13. Then as a result of those things, the Lord added to their number. How did the church grow? They had as a priority community, fellowship together. The priority was not wearing a sandwich board downtown saying, repent, the end is near. That wasn't the priority. 
And it shouldn't be ours. Listen to me, please. There is no point in us doing anything outward facing if we don't first develop in community here. And we won't develop in community here if we're not first in agreement that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and Savior of sinners. That's where we start. The foundation is that shared faith. And if we don't cultivate gospel community, gospel community, we won't have a church here. We will have something that looks like a church but is far more damaging. So your assignment this week is to meditate on 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and then Acts 2, 42 through 47, and ask yourself two questions. Question number one, is my foundation Jesus? Question number two, Am I living like the disciples in Acts 2, 42 through 47?